Well, it's with a little trepidation I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Why do I say that? Well, there's many analogies and maybe illustrations that can be brought about as to this chapter or these next couple chapters in Scripture. One being its familiarity to most of us in the story of Scripture. It's a well-known narrative where we see God's divine hand of redemption where he's rescuing the Israelites out of the bondage to Egypt. And we know it well. We know the Passover lamb. We know its typological connection to Christ. It is very familiar to us. I also know that is uh, in studying it that Though I don't know, I can say that necessarily above other passages for each passage, I believe, is a testimony to the redemption in Christ, as we will see, that it does seem like this passage is especially soaked with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as a minister of the word and you come to God's word, there are times when you come and you and you come to God's word and it's kind of like a sponge and I'll be honest, sometimes it feels a little damp and not so soaked in such things as the revelation of Jesus Christ, especially in the Old Testament. But here in the Passover lamb, it's like grabbing that sponge out of the sink, and as you bring it up, there's no way to collect all the water in this one sponge. So we must be satisfied with what the Lord has prepared for us to receive this morning. And it is in this chapter that we will come to it in multiple parts. This is part one where we address it in its elemental form, really, and then we'll see uh, the effect of it in the narrative and life of the Israelites in the coming weeks, as well as looking at the other festivals uh, that uh, come out of this act of God. Follow along as I read for us Exodus, I'll be reading Exodus 12, 1 through 13, and then verses 21 and 22, though there are much of this message that comes out of the whole of Exodus 12, but uh, for a selection of reading, we'll be reading Exodus 12, 1 through 13, and verses 21 and 22. Yes, amen. (laughs) Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. 
They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on the night, on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Then Moses called for all the elders of Egypt and said to them, Go and take for yourself lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him for help again this morning. Oh Lord, we do ask your help this morning, for as we come to your word, we come in holy anticipation that your spirit will enliven it to us. That by the preaching of your word rightly, Lord, that we your people may be fed with a spiritual food that cannot be provided apart from both faith and spirit and so is essential to the well-being of our souls. May this all be done in your will and for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is the culmination of that question that Pharaoh asked in chapter 5 that I continue to remind you about where he says, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? This is God's, in some ways, this is his final answer. He has a exclamation point to it when there's a crossing of the Red Sea, but here, God's final answer, his final blow to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh, is this 10th plague where he sets it apart from all the other plagues where we have seen that they've been arranged in these groups of threes all leading up to this tenth plague, all anticipating this tenth plague. As we've said, the Lord is not at odds with Pharaoh and wondering how is he to convince Pharaoh to let the people go, but he is determined that, the, that he would let Pharaoh or leave Pharaoh to the hardening, hardening of his heart such that it would be in such a way that he would announce his sovereignty over all things, over the house of Pharaoh, over every beast of the field, over every household in Egypt, and yet also his mercy and grace to his chosen people. And so this morning as we look at this 10th plague or begin to look at it, uh, my intention, my goal is that 
the believer is to rejoice in another Lord's Day in which they are to reorient their vision to the one who is able and worthy so that as they might not despair but overcome. A.W. Pink says, and he was very helpful for me this week, there are many typical or typological pictures of the sacrificial work of Christ scattered throughout the Old Testament. Yet it is to be doubted if any single one of them supplies so complete, so many-sided a portrayal of the person and work of the Savior as does the one before us. Another theologian likened it, or likened the Old Testament to a to God's picture book of his redemption in Christ. It is God's uh, picture book of his redemption in Christ so that when we come to the Old Testament, we can ask rightly, what does this reveal of our Savior? We must. Scripture demands it. A little note about that message a method, turn with me to First Peter. It's helpful for us to be reminded of such wonderful truths in Scripture that we come not to this through uh, imagination. We come not to this passage in finding connections that were never intended, but we come to it in pattern of the apostles who also patterned our Savior. First Peter Verse 1 and 10, we may know it well, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know if the person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The Spirit of God will eventually descend in Exodus and fill the tabernacle, or first descend upon the mountain, but then eventually he'll descend into the tabernacle and dwell amongst his people. But that wasn't a consummated dwelling. That was a covenantal dwelling. That was a dwelling that points to a greater dwelling, one in which we're going to see eventually that it is Christ pictured, for he comes in tabernacles among us, as John's gospel said. But here we see that it is the Holy Spirit sent from heaven who is preaching these things to Peter's audience, to those that have heard the gospel, preaching them of such things that the Old Testament was intended to do, that is to show the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. We read in verses 18 specifically, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Consider Peter giving them the method and then applying the method there in 18 through 20. Turn now to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verses 
16 through 19. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in, in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Here, Paul connects Christ's death and resurrection with the Christian's calendar. First, identifying the old covenant calendar in festivals, in new moons, and in Sabbath days, or in a Sabbath day, not the Sabbath day, but a Sabbath day, as we find in the old covenant, multiple Sabbath days. But he's connecting here these things, Christ's death and resurrection, and its effect on the Christian's calendar. These things within the Old Testament ought to be understood now with the light of Christ's first coming. Shows that these days are appointed to reveal Christ to us, or for us, to wonder at the grace of our Lord, who determined from before the foundation of the world to be our Passover lamb. And so, he tells them that no one should be a judge over you in these things, for these things are bound up in the revelation of Christ. The substance has come. The shadow has gone. We, but we can go back to the shadow now that the substance of, has come and see it even more clearly than those who first received it. We may know then, we may ask ourselves, where did the Apostle Paul, where did the Apostle Peter get uh, such an understanding of the Old Testament? Well, the understanding and the teaching and the right uh, conclusion is they got it from our Lord. In John 5, verses 46 and 47, he's speaking to the, the Jewish leaders, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So here, Christ tells them that Moses wrote about him. Peter, the spirit through Peter says he wrote about the sufferings and the subsequent glories to come. And then in verse 47 of John 5, our Lord equates his words with Moses' words, not only on the same plane, but in continuation. Luke 24, 25, and 27 Christ speaking to uh, the disciples or speaking to uh, those men on the road to Emmaus. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of scripture. Here the testimony of our Lord is that at his advent, at his advent comes a cataclysmic revelation of God's intention in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, such that all that the prophets 
have spoken should be examined in such a way. And so we see the testimony of our Lord and instruction there, and we see the obedience and further instruction of the apostles. And so we come now back to Exodus 12, and so we look at it through this lens, instructed by our Lord to do so. And so we're going to see first as it explains this plague, as it explains the Passover, it's going to first give us, it's going to even kind of take a step outside of the narrative altogether and give explanation to what God was doing in this plague. The first explanation is that God was reorienting their calendar. He was giving them a basis of timing for their year. He says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. John Gill says, while the Israelites were in Egypt, they observed the same beginning of the year and course of, and course of months as the Egyptians. But now to the Israelites, it was changed unto this vernal equinox, this, uh, this, um, uh, the vernal equinox, the spring equinox, for this month of Abib or Nisan answers to part of our March and part of April. Though indeed both beginnings of the year were observed by them, that is, the, he says, one ecclesiastical and the other civil, that is, one here as the first day in Nisan, which would be later called Nisan, and then another one was also being observed, which was in the fall. And they continued, he says, to observe both of these. Uh, Josephus expresses it, the month of Nisan was the beginning with respect to the things divine, but in buying and selling and such like things, the ancient order was observed. So they would see this, they would see this other calendar year in relation to those things. Even to this day, the Jewish New Year is celebrated in the fall, not in the spring. So here we have defined the exact time at which the Paschal Lamb was to die. It was to be kept up or tethered until the 14th day of Nisan. So they, were they have the first day of their year, and then there's a relation to that, which is 10 days from that. Now the Lamb is taken in, and now on the 14th day, it was to be killed in the evening, or more literally, between the evenings. That is between the 14th and 15th days of the month. So what we see here is a, a relation to 10, to 14, and to 15. 10, we understand, is a symbo symbolic number to God's uh, to power. When things are power, they have 10 of something. They're, they're, there's a completeness to them in that way of their, of their power. But in the 14, we have two sevens. We know seven and the ordering of God's week with his creation week coming to an end in that first, first Sabbath, that seventh day Sabbath. And yet here, it's interesting that this takes place in between the evenings in between the Sabbath and what would become known as the first day 
or also can be viewed as the eighth day. That is two sevens plus one. They would actually leave on the eighth day. The eighth day is pregnant with ceremonial significance in redemptive history. As with all types and shadows ordained by God, it was invested with theological significance to observe the redemptive historical purpose of God. The Jews were circumcised, the male Jews were circumcised on the eighth day. Pentecost was observed on the 50th day, seven sevens plus one plus an eighth day. The eighth day is also the first day of the week. So we observe that there were sacrifices that were on the first day and then on the seventh day. The Lord was showing his intention to make this first day of the week a new birth and specifically a new creation. Not only was this, not only was this also uh, this Passover to be held in such a way as into this time, but it was also anticipated that it was to be held in perpetuity until it came to its completion and its end. It was to show its transient ability. The fact that there is any other Passover celebration than this one shows that it is transient in its use. This would not be the last Passover celebrated. It was only the first. Here, the Spirit writing to the Hebrews says in, in chapter 10, verse 1, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This Passover, though, had direct historical implication for the people of Israel in their redeem being redeemed out of Egypt. They're, they're also being passed over by the angel of death by putting the blood on the lintels and the doorposts. Yet those same Israelites were not all leaving Egypt with clear consciences. Not all those Israelites were true Israelites. So here we have within this feast a deposit of God's intention to once again reorder the calendar of his people. He was showing them that it would be on this eighth day, on this first, first day, that a new creation would come, a new start would come. And that that new start would be the last start. So when we celebrate the supper, we don't celebrate it as a re-sacrifice of Christ. We celebrate it because it represents the finished sacrifice of Christ. It doesn't come in, in shadow form. It comes by the Spirit of God working through our faith 
to give us Christ. So here in this first institution of the Passover, it was to show them that God would one day end all Passovers. God will one day send the final, the final Passover lamb would be slain so that all Passovers would be done away with. And then it is for us as Christians to see that our calendar is one as it relates to our citizenship in heaven is one of a weekly calendar that we may take time throughout the year to remember different uh, redemptive acts of God, both in scripture and both in church history. We do so in, in joy and gladness, but we do so not under compulsion of conscience. Our only conscience is bound to celebrate the one holy day of God, which is his day set apart for his worship. The first day of the week, this eighth day, given to us to reorder our calendars. But we're reminded in like with the Israelites that we live in two kingdoms. But we also have a civil calendar. We follow a January through December year. We think about New Year's when they come to pass. We think about fiscal years in our businesses and in our different vocations. But for the Christian, he has only one calendar as it relates to his conscience, and that is the Lord's Day. And here we have that deposit in the Passover celebration. And within this, not only do we see its timing, but we also start to be introduced to its elements. This unleavened bread, these bitter herbs, and certainly this lamb or goat. The unleavened bread we'll address when we look at the instituting of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we'll just look at bitter herbs and the lamb this morning. The bitter herbs, as we see the instruction of them to take bitter herbs, a, a part of their meal, they were to be expressive of the bitter afflictions of the children of Israel in Egypt with which their lives were made bitter. It was for them to remember their time of bondage, a place of mourning. Every year when they celebrated the Passover, they were to remember that, that, that rep those bitter herbs represented their bitter affliction and bondage in Egypt. And though it is in like way for us, to think about our affliction and persecution in this world, it is first and primarily to point us toward the affliction of our Savior. Because you may notice that as the Lord instituted his supper on Passover, his instituting of it leaves out an element. We have wine and we have bread, but we have no bitter herb. Those bitter herbs of affliction were bound up in our Savior. Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, 
for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. Consider our Lord. Consider our Lord's representation here in the Passover is not one of Exodus. He's not one that goes out of Israel. He stays behind in the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. He's the one cut off from the land of the living. Those bitter herbs would be the ones that he would consume himself and in himself. So we see in these bitter herbs, we see something that's not carried on in the supper. We see something that passes away and is fulfilled in Christ. The other element we come and this is the primary element we have is the animal. It's a lamb or a goat, a docile creature, as well as domesticated or, or one that they raised. It was a part of their livelihood. It was who they defined themselves as. They went and dwelt in the land of Goshen because they were shepherds. They kept sheep. They kept goats. The lamb and the goat also was telling that they could be consumed in the night. They could be roasted and consumed in the night. And that they could be, uh, if need be, the rest of the meat consumed uh, in fire afterwards. This lamb, though, is not only to be a docile creature. It is also to be one we see that is without blemish. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. This be is the paradigm for all sacrifice prior to the Passover and after the Passover. Leviticus 22 describes uh, sacrificial animals to be without blemish. It must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. It must be perfect perfect to be must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord. This unblemished male lamb or goat a year old, this is the sacrifice that would be pleasing to the Lord. The only one that would be satisfying to the Lord would be one of unblemished nature. Nothing but a perfect sacrifice could satisfy the requirements of God, who himself is perfect. One who had sin in himself could not make an atonement for sins. One who did not himself keep the law in thought and word and deed could not magnify it and make it honorable. I read a quote uh, this week in that great theological tome of social media and a great theologian uh, quarterback, David Carr, says, and I either was told to him or reflecting on the eclipse that happened this week and said the sun can burn your retinas from 92 million miles away and you expect to stroll into the presence of its creator we must see God as a holy 
and righteous God, a perfect being, one in whom there is no shadow of turning, there is no safeguard for imperfection. He displays this, he communicates this by saying the only sacrifice that will suffice for your deliverance out of Egypt, the only sacrifice that will restore our covenant relations in the old covenant, the only sacrifice that you can offer to make peace or to demonstrate peace with me is one that is perfect and unblemished. This well-pleasing sacrifice would later be identified as the well-pleasing servant. Isaiah 42 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And we know well the testimony of our God in Matthew 3 and 17. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Christ is that satisfaction offered to God. Christ is the one who ascends the hill of our Lord, who goes into the presence, who, who takes the sacrifice into the holy of holies, offering it once for all. Here pictured in the Lamb's unblemished outward physical attributes is completed in the whole person of our Savior. The other thing we see of this lamb is not only that it is one of the docile creatures and domestic in nature without blemish, but it is also one that is peculiarly a year old. And I keep saying Lamb, because it says now if the household is too small for a lamb, but it also references sheep and goats. And so we often think of a baby, a baby sheep as a lamb, but this lamb was one who was uh, a year old. It wasn't straight from the womb, nor was it on in years, on closer to its creaturely end. A.W. Pink recognizes that the lamb was not to be too young or too old. It was to die in the fullness of its strength. If we ask how that might apply to Christ, we note that this particular may be fully sustained as a description of him. For he died for us not in old age, nor in childhood, or boyhood, or in youth, but in the fullness of his opening manhood. This lamb, a year old, typified that our Savior would come in the strength of his days. He would not be slaughtered by Herod, nor would he see old age, but he'd be taken in the strength of his days, such as these lambs were slain or they were sacrificed at a year old. Again, what we see in this lamb is that it is not just a lamb, 
it is it becomes your lamb in the instruction to the Israelites it says your lamb shall be unblemished that they shall sacrifice your lamb the progression of possession whereby the Israelites were to begin to associate themselves with the lamb in verse 3 it is a lamb in verse 4 it is the lamb but in verse 5 it is your lamb they were to associate themselves with this lamb such that it was possessive of them this is our lamb this is our lamb for our deliverance So Christ must be to us. He can't just be a savior of men. He can't just be the savior of men. But he must be in our own hearts our savior. He must be your savior. Here again in, in a magnificent observation of the word of God in its grammatical sense. As even though we talk about this in its uh, spiritual sense, we recognize that it is not detracted and it is all contained in the literal sense. And so we see that the use of lamb here is singular. Many thousands of lambs were to be slain on that memorial night in Egypt. Yet the Lord here dis uh, des designedly used the singular number when giving these instructions to Moses. Israel shall kill it, not them. It is indeed remarkable that never once is the plural lambs used throughout the 12th chapter of Exodus. In 1 Timothy 2, we read, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time time here we see that this designation that the Lord gives in its singularity of the lamb is one of deposit just like when God promised Abraham a seed an offspring and Paul observed not many offspring but a offspring so the Lord here provides, though thousands of lambs are goats, singular reference to them, so that this deposit would be laid, that they would not be looking to a multiplicity of saviors, but a singularity of the one who would come. We see that there is a imperative for the Israelites who would that were to take this lamb, they were to slain it, they were to kill it, and that would then they were to be then they were to act properly with it. An Israel might an Israelite might have selected a proper lamb. He might have slain it. But unless he had applied its blood to the outside of the door, the angel of death would have entered his house and slain his firstborn. Again, for us, we must by faith take the blood and shelter beneath it. 
We must place it between our sins and the thrice holy God. We must rely upon it as the sole ground of our acceptance with him. So that we would see that there is glorious effect of their following the instructions of the Lord. For we see that God's eye was not upon those within the house when he came to the houses. They might have been descendants of Abraham. They might have been circumcised on the eighth day. And in their outward life, they might be walking blamelessly so far as the law was concerned. But it was neither their genealogy, nor their ceremonial observances, nor their works which secured deliverance from God's judgments. It was their personal application of the shed blood and that alone. That which provided a safe refuge from judgment was the death of the lamb and sprinkling of the blood. So many err on this point. They want to make their experience, their feelings, something within themselves the basis of their assurance. This is a favorite device of Satan to turn the eye downwards upon ourselves. The Holy Spirit ever directs the eye away from ourselves to God and his word. See, the difference between the Egyptians and Israel was not a moral one, was not a ceremonial one, was not a genealogical one. In this plague, It was one made solely by the blood of what's called the Paschal Lamb. The difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians was not one of ethnicity. It was one of sacrifice. Those that took refuge in the blood of the Passover Lamb were passed over. So for us, as for them, security is by the applied blood of the Lamb. Assurance and peace are to be found by resting on the word of God and its revelation of Christ our Lord. The ground of both is outside of ourselves. Feelings have nothing to do with either. Deliverance from judgment is by the finished work of Christ, and by that alone, nothing else will avail. Religious experiences, ordinances, self-sacrifice, church membership, works of mercy, cultivation of character, avail nothing. If you have really believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and received him as your own Savior, as the word of God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That is enough. That is the word of him who cannot lie. Nothing more is needed. Never mind about your feelings. Do not stop to examine your repentance to see if it be deep enough. It is Christ that saves, not your tears or prayers or resolutions. If you have received Christ, then you are saved. Oh, there will be a going out. Oh, there will be a journey. 
but it will be in light of this deliverance, in light of this gracious deliverance. When the executioner of God's judgment saw the blood upon the houses of the Israelites, he entered not. And why? Because death had already done its work there. The innocent had died in the place of the guilty. It is not merely God's mercy, but his righteousness, which is now on the side of his people. It is not that God overlooks our sins, but that he has sent one to be the propitiation, the sacrifice, the satisfaction of them. <coughs> the hymn, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine. Well, like a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. My soul looks back to see the burdens thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree and know her guilt was there. Believing we rejoice to see the curse removed, we bless the lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding love. The Lord has ordained this day to be a day of rejoicing, that the lamb who was slain lives again. The lamb who was slain has live, lives again and will return again. The believers to rejoice in another Lord's Day in which they are to reorient their vision to the one who is able and worthy so that they might not despair but overcome. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you praise for the wonder of your grace and mercy to us. We also give you praise for the beauty of your word, this word breathed by your spirit to reveal to us a thrice holy God who is holy, 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 in whom we cannot stand in the presence of by any righteousness of our own, and so are in need of a Savior who in thought, word, and deed sinned not, and yet was placed on the altar and sacrificed on our behalf. May this wonder well up in us all the right emotions, all the right actions to live according to your word, to rejoice in every Lord's day as we see the last one approaching. What wonder and grace. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.